Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. You know, customer service is so important these days, and a lot of times we have crappy customer service. But something happened the other week, and it was amazing. I was watching the Eagles game at my friend Jose's house around the corner, and his friend showed up, and they had a 12-pack of Modelo. And as the guy grabbed one of the beers, it was completely empty. The can was empty. So we looked at it. There was no hole. We had no idea how it happened. So I said, give me the can. So I took a picture of the can, and then I crushed the can so they could see it was empty. And I tweeted them. And what they're doing now is they said, well, thank you for showing us this. And they're sending me money back for a 12-pack. And the best part is they said, how much did you pay for it? And I said, I don't know. I didn't buy it, but no one else wanted to tweet. So that was good customer service. So always ask because a lot of times, 95% of the time, if you tweet them, they're going to get back to you. So anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, this this gentleman, It's I was just thinking, I haven't probably, he's, I know him back from my days in the old Philadelphia comedy scene, and I probably haven't talked to him because I'll be 53 at the end of this month. I moved when I was 30. I probably haven't talked to him in almost 25 years. And I remember when he started doing comedy, he was this wiry fellow who always wore a jacket. He was thin and he was funny. And he came on the stage and he used to always show up with this girl named Barb. She had glasses and red hair. And they, she'd always come see him perform. And he, he went on stage and he would lip sync to 10,000 Maniacs. And I, I still remember that because... People would lip sync and it would be stupid, but his lip sync was funny because it was just so different. And my guest is Buddy Fitzpatrick. How you doing, Buddy? Hey, Steve. Good. And thanks for um, bringing up something I haven't thought about in a very long time. Dude, isn't it so funny that when we think about like our old acts, you know, I've had people come on and, and you think how, and I haven't seen your act forever, and I'm sure every act, as I know, everyone develops and they start talking about their personal lives, but it was so funny because that was a really, it was fresh when you did it. I mean, it was funny because, first of all, no one really even knew who 10,000 Maniacs were. They were right on that cusp of that song becoming yep. big. And then I think uh, yep. she had one hit. But how did you just, funnily, how did you ever come up with that idea? And it's sort of ballsy when you go up to an open mic when you don't know anybody. I mean, how did you come up with that idea? Because I had no other idea. And I remember... Uh, just starting out with Barb, you're right, absolutely. I owe her my first time getting up there uh, at the, um, whatever it was called, CFO. So um, it was my, my like fourth or fifth time, maybe, and I couldn't think of anything to do. Nothing was working. My material wasn't working. And I said, just as I was going up, I said to whoever was in the booth, Keep the song going because I used to come up to it. I used to play it for my introduction because we go boom, 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 da 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 da, boom, and I used to like walking out on that. Okay, <laughs> I just said, I said, don't, don't stop it, and I just, Steve, I swear to God, in the moment, just started lip syncing it and stripped it down to my underwear. Yeah, I, I forgot about. Yeah, you did. That's that's pretty crazy. Because as I said, you were, you were you were a wiry guy, and that was good. I mean, you, just, you haven't put any weight on, which is great. But uh, that's just. I mean, that's so funny. That's like very almost performance art, but not like pretentious performance uh, art, like fun performance art. <laughs> you're you're giving me way too much credit. That was, in fact, I'll tell you something. It 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 as we say in the business, moved me up from hosting to, to middling or featuring. And I remember Steve Young, remember Steve Young at the Comedy Works in Philly. Um, I came off one night. Remember that show, Steve, that room w w when it was packed up in the balconies and so forth? It was a great room oh, yeah, when was, I look back on it. It was great. The only thing I didn't like about it was is that the, the laughs would rise. Like I was a CFO guy. And when the CFO was packed, I mean, because it was that low smell yeah, of popcorn. Yeah, it was popcorn. very intimate and dirty and that that was a that was for me the room but when yeah when the comedy works was packed it was crazy because it held so many damn people it held so many damn people and you were it was my first take it was like half club half theater it was very strange but good and i walked off you know uh, with with applause and they were laughing and i was in my underwear and i gathered up my clothes and I walked off, and I and I was like all proud of myself. And Steve Young was in the uh, back in the control booth, and I he goes, "Good set." And I said, "Thanks." And he goes, "I bet you can't wait to get rid of that and be embarrassed you ever came up with the idea." 
That's funny. <laughs> and that's when I stopped doing it. Now, I yeah. got to ask you, when did you, I know you wanted to act first. I mean, when did this start? As a kid, did you want to act? And when did you do the branch of the comedy? Were you a creative kid? Was it something you wanted to do? Or was it something you fell into? Because I know I was right up on you. You, you, you had, you started off with as an actor. Yep. And still, still whenever I can uh, do it. I make so many pilots that never go anywhere. Um, so I'm good at that. Um, my father, when we were kids, I'm the youngest of the three brothers, took us to the theater all the time. And I didn't really appreciate it until I got into high school and I didn't have any interest in academics, nothing. My father was a, a Philadelphia criminal defense attorney. Didn't interest me in the least. And when I got to high school, I auditioned for the play and that was it. I mean, honestly, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. There was no looking back. Um, I regret a lot of how I did a lot of the stuff, but I don't regret ever still in it. You know what I mean? As they say, still in it. You said you're going to be 53. I'm going to be 56 this month. Okay, when's your birthday? Isn't that crazy? Uh, 23rd. I'm, I'm the 30th, so we're close. We're fellow scorpions. Unless they cha- I heard they changed <laughs> okay. the whole thing. I don't know. So, no, you said you have some... I don't know. I don't think we're scorpions anymore. Yeah, you're right. Really? Screw that. I'm going to be a scorpion because we can be dicks and we can get away with it. So what, That's right, yes. Exactly. Yes, and when you want to be nice, I always say I'm on the cut. Exactly. So now i got to ask you, you said you had some regrets in how you did it. What were some of those regrets that how you got to your career? Because the bottom line is they worked out because you're 50, you'll be 56, and you've been doing, you've been applying your craft for, since, you know, I mean, over 30 years. What were some of the regrets you had? Um, well, when I was living in New York, I really didn't dare myself or challenge myself to live like a struggling actor. I all I couldn't I couldn't not make money, and my social uh, my social situation was more important to me. So I mean I made friends, I dated, um, and I always needed to be around people like that. I, I wish I had gone into the theater. I wish I had just gone into it and started day in and day out living that life and I didn't I went on auditions I, I auditioned for plays here and there but um, it's why I ultimately got into stand-up comedy was to make money and not leave the business and um, oh my god that's what 20 25 years now I guess right well yeah I mean it, it's I mean yeah it's been a long time now but you went to the Academy of Dramatic Arts I did American Academy of Dramatic Arts um, in my class were Scott Valentine and Annabelle Sciorra, and those are probably the only two that have made it and then disappeared. <laughs> but, um, wait, wait, was, uh, was, was, yeah. Scott, was Scott Valentine Nick from uh, Family Ties? Yes. Okay. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Still is. Yeah. So now, so now what made you move back to Philly? Because you were, I mean, you A girl. Okay. I mean, plain and simple, who I married and ultimately divorced. Okay, so so you yeah. you decided to sit there and you sat there and went, okay, you're in New York, you were in love, and you decided to leave the leave the theater there and come back to Philly. Easy call for me at that time. Easy call. You know, it's um, I thought it was my only opportunity, <laughs> and so I went for it. And that's... and uh, and you know, I had a 23 year marriage. I have two beautiful daughters. I mean, it was all meant to be. I have. That I don't regret, but when I look back, I want to go back to that 18-year-old. Remember Morgan Freeman and Shawshank at the end? I want to go back to that kid and say, you know, tell him how stupid he is. And I want to go back to my 18-year-old kid and go, just do it this way this time. See what happens. You know, the, but I didn't challenge myself enough. Well, it's funny you say that because I sometimes go through that too. I got out of comedy completely for the wrong reasons. And then I look at it and it's like I look at it and go, well, you know what? If I hadn't got out of comedy, my life may have been different, but my life may have sucked, you know, and that's the one thing I always look at because now, you know, I'm, I'm happily with a woman. I get to interview people and it's just something that I don't miss comedy. I don't, you know, it's something that I like when I did it, but I think sometimes we sit there and we look and we go, what if, but then we have to sit there and go, well, what if things, you mean, you could have been completely different. You could have been become a male stripper because you didn't sit there and, uh, <laughs> you know, it wasn't things yeah. were going right. So, so what made oh, I don't you, know. Yeah. What made you go to stage? What if so dangerous, Steve? What if so dangerous? Because you can stay there longer than you really should. You exactly. Know? I try not to stay there too long. 
Now, now, what made you go to on stage that first night? How did you sit there and decide you wanted to do stand up? You're in Philadelphia for a girl. You so did you just find out there's an open mic, or what gravitates you towards the stage your first time? CFO was always on the radio on WMMR, and they would have uh, people from you know that comedy club on, and I listened to it all the time and. I remember saying to my girlfriend and Barb, uh, who would ultimately be my partner in crime, I think I want to try this. I think I want to try doing it. And in New York, Steve, I used to go to open mic night just to watch the comedy because it was cheap. It was a night out. Me and my roommates would go. And there was always something about what they were doing that intrigued me. But I never thought in a million years I would do it. And then I thought, you know what, I'm not, I don't want to go out and get a job. I always, I always came to a point in, in my career and in my life where I seriously thought about getting a job completely out of the business. There was always a time where I was like, I could be a masseuse or I could be a realtor and I could do that when I want to and still go and, you know, I was always thinking about it and then I'd always end up with, wait a minute, how can I stay in the business and make more money? I would ultimately come to that. So I thought, I'll give stand-up a try. And nowadays, I mean, oh my God, I don't think I got my first paying gig after three or four years, maybe. Nowadays, you work with comics. How long have you been doing it? Six months. Whoa, you know, it's going fast. It's a whole different ballgame than it was back then. You could make more money back then um, and be, I think, uh, showcased more. You know what I mean? It's just saturated now. Well, I, I noticed, well, back, I always tell people, because, you know, I, I, I dabble in stand-up every once in a while. I just got a booking thing from some club out in my town, Burbank. But uh, I, I, I noticed the same thing. There's so many there's so many more comics. And I tell these comics, it was weird, you know, because when, when we were starting out and working, I used to work for Andy Scarpati a lot. And as an MC, you'd make between 150 and two and a quarter a weekend. Now, what I've heard is, like, if if you're you know and as you get fifty to seventy five a show now I heard that's like feature money I mean I've heard the the whole financial breakdown has changed a lot yeah it's tough you know and you going on the road doesn't people would go on the road sure to travel comics would go on the road to get away from their wives or whatever but it, it was also a money maker it was like doing boats you didn't you didn't like love doing it but you would go go and do it now. The road is exactly like if I were to stay in Jersey and work. There's no, there's no incentive financially to go on the road unless you put asses in the seat. Um, and I don't. I, I am a you know working comic, and I, I have my little bit of a, a fan club. But for the most part, people who come to see me are just going to a comedy club. And for me to go to Kentucky. <laughs> And then swing over to Ohio. I this tri-state area is chock full of work, so that's what um, that's the benefit of there not being that kind of money because I don't have to I don't have to leave the house to get it. Um, but it's it's tough. It's more of a struggle definitely than it was back then. And I don't know. I guess the recession. You know, look when when companies stop having Christmas parties and employee incentive and school stop doing PTA fundraisers, you know, everybody, it's, as they say, trickle down or domino effect, you know? Oh yeah. It's I don't know if we're out of that yet. I don't know. It's, I know it's funny cause I noticed that with Christmas parties too. I mean, I've heard, you know, I, that's how I got back together with my old girl, my, my girlfriend now I knew her in college, but she was booking a Christmas party and she heard, I, she, she saw me in 1990 and I found out what the budget was, and I said, you can use me, or I gave her Joe Matarese's name, because I thought someone that would, you know, I knew, and of course they picked Matarese, because I had just gotten back into stand-up, and this was just a few years ago. But even after that, like the next year, I, I did the party, but the budget dropped. So you're right, it's, a lot of these companies don't have the budget, where it used to be a big chunk of change to do a Christmas party or a corporate event. It's not the same anymore. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I think that affects the show. I try not to let it, but man, when you were... <laughs> When you when your career was on the line, when they were paying for quality, it sort of comics rose to the occasion. I think more, and um, because you really do get what you pay for. And I'm not saying that every comic like bails or, but you know, Steve, it's like going to a gig in the hotel is is just a horrible, scuzzy place versus if they take care of you. 
put you in a nice room. They offer you breakfast and dinner and a couple drinks at the bar on the house. It just makes for a better show. It's the same thing with pay. Obviously, the more you pay, the more you're, I think, the harder you work. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe, maybe I'm a little bitter, so I, I always go, well, you know, you're not paying me $10,000. You're giving me 1500 so let's not go crazy. You know, I'll do forty-five and get, get out of here. Well, I think also what it was, Different. yeah, and I think also the difference is, and this is my opinion, is that when, when you're getting paid more, okay, and you're getting that extra money, you know, you get the good nugget of cash, you want to sit there and you don't want to lose that gig. So you want to sit there and go, next year, they're going to bring me back. It's, it's like a Christmas bonus. You know, you're like, okay, they just gave me whatever amount of money. I, I don't want to lose this gig. But, but if they give you a little bit amount of money, you're like, well, if I lose this, I can find something else. That's right. It doesn't necessarily affect your income, you know, seriously. Right. And, and, you know, you can also, um, I can think of specifically two places that I choose not to go to because the money's not that great. Um, they don't consider themselves, you know, road gigs because they're not in the city. It's ridiculous. And, um, and they don't really, they're not nice to you when you get out there. So I, I, you know, I never thought I'd be in the position to say, yeah, I don't want to do that. I'm not doing that room anymore. It's actually good. Actually, there's three. Now I'm coming up with more. We'll see that. <laughs> I won't get on a plane and do. It's ridiculous. Well, it's crazy. So now, now, okay. Now, now. I was just going to say, and flying's not what it used to be either. That's a whole other discussion. Oh, how shitty that business is. I can yeah. imagine. I just a friend of mine went down to uh, to the Austin Music Festival, and he wanted to um, stay cheap. He flew out of New Jersey, Philly, and he took Frontier, and which I heard is just awful. I tried to book with them before, and it was like I went through orbits, and they said the flight wasn't around. So if anyone's going to fly Frontier, don't because they're awful. And uh, <laughs> he he there his luggage ended up in Milwaukee. Uh, and three days later, he got it. Now, I'm sorry, but you know it should it shouldn't take three days. But I mean, Frontier, and you have to pay for your back for Frontier. That's what's even worse. Yeah. So, so now you would expect, you know, <laughs> crazy. I hate that. I hate hearing things like that, and I hate when it's happened to me, and it's horrible. Yeah. So, okay. Now I ask you. So now, now you're doing you're doing a stand up in Philly, and and you're you're working you're working your up, and you're you're getting rid of the getting in your underwear. Now, when do you start scaling <laughs> up, and then when do you decide that that New York is a place for you, or when do you decide that you go, I have to get out of Philly? And and was it a hard transition to get out of Philly to try to bring your career to another level? Because a lot of Philly comics they just stay as Philly comics, and God bless them. But there's not. You don't see a lot of, unless you leave Philly, you're not really hitting that next level. Well, that's probably true. I, I mean, but you can also stay in Philly. We know guys who make a really good living and they're local favorites. And, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, and it's great. I, I think that's awesome. In some ways, I envy that. Um, yeah, I, I guess I made the leap. Um I, I, I can't to any other change I've made in my life. I just um, uh, did it. Don't really think too much about it or what the consequences are going to be. I just, it was the next thing to do on my checklist. Once I figure it out here in Philly, uh, I'm going to go to New York. and that's Or L.A. And I chose New York because, again, I was in love. So she wasn't going anywhere. So I, the only reason I chose New York was because of her, again, <laughs> you know, uh, basing decisions on my personal life as well. So I moved to New York, and um, she eventually, we eventually got a place in Jersey, which I'm still in, you know. This was middle ground. And, it's, and again, Steve, I treated the comedy clubs the same way I did when I was trying to get, when I called myself an actor and trying to get jobs, I didn't really attack them the way I should have. I was very awkward at that. I hated hanging at the bar and not knowing anyone or, um, you know, trying to finagle your way in there and looking like the oddball. I'm very self-conscious like that. And it wasn't until I worked with Caroline Ray um, at a gig, I did five minutes a guest spot at the old improv up, up, uh, up, or 
upper New York uh, west side. And she saw me and she introduced me to Lewis at Catch, uh, at Catch a Rising Star, and he put me on and that's when I started getting gigs because of her. Somebody, you know, because of somebody else in the business. And <laughs> 20 years later, I, I'm starting to get a good reputation. Yeah. <laughs> so what was your what, what what was your act like when you that, did that five minutes? How did you how did, had you changed your act? I mean, I, I still remember you used to also do the thing where you you had the dry heaves, and that was funnier than shit. I I have an idiot savant memory. Ben, God, I forgot about that. That's yeah. the only two things I remember from your act. But that would kill because it was you'd be telling a joke and the people he'd be telling a joke and they act like he was going to get sick. And it's funny if you do it once. But when you do it five times, it's even even funnier. I love humor like that, and and the crowd they, they didn't know. Some people thought he was serious because you know there's some people who might think that you know because comics had a reputation of partying, and uh, and people didn't know he's serious. Now, what, what were you doing in your act at Catch? What do you think at five minutes? What do you think Lewis saw in you? Um. Somebody who could make the audience laugh, I think, just the bottom line. And I was clean and safe. And that's what pegged me as an MC, as an opener. Wasn't doing anything, um, I wasn't doing anything daring or, uh, it was all, hey, hey, did you ever see a mounted policeman? <laughs> you know, how do they pull you over? That kind of stuff. Okay. But it was, you know, it was, what was it, the late 80s, early 90s? And that's, that, you know, it was all Seinfeld humor, observational. So I fell right into that mainstream and didn't, again, didn't go out on that limb, you know. Like Paul. Paul, you know, Paul Tompkins, good good example of somebody who um, really found his voice very early on, even when it was unpopular. Oh, yeah, he, he found his voice in Gus. You know, when I think about it, the shit they were doing, you know, Gus was just a, uh, you know, people, Paul Tompkins was originally in a group with the late Rick Rome, I believe his name was, called Gus and they Roman, were, yeah. Roman yeah and they were doing stuff that was uh, at that time people didn't get but it was just funny it was very funny and you know we'd be in the back cracking up remember the, the comics would love it and the audience was hit or miss and even Paul when he when, when Rick uh, left the gig he left the gig before he passed away but or no no actually he didn't that's the reason Paul went on single was because Rick passed away, that's right. And um, he never wavered, you know. He <laughs> he worked very hard at what he did, and obviously it shows now it paid off. But So he worked hard on writing, but not changing his style. He's, he, he has a voice, and I always admired that about him. I was more very, very general back then. Um, and, you know, how come you never see the end of a chapstick or whatever? And uh, that's what got me opening up shows. And I got in really emceeing, which oddly in the city makes the most money on the, on the, on the set. So right. it didn't bother me. So, so you're working in the city. And then I know, uh, when do you start branching up into getting to a different level? I know you're with Omnipop. I don't know how long you've been with Omnipop. But um, when did you sit there and start branching and to start getting different gigs and getting out of that MC position in the city? Um, I went through some bad things in my life, um, divorce, and it completely changed my way of thinking. And it took me a long time. So for about two years, I was married on stage when my, when in reality my marriage was falling apart. And it was very, um, it, on one way it was cathartic. I got out of myself when I was on stage, you know, the show must go on. But it was very unsatisfying artistically. Um, I was really literally doing doing it by rote and making money. And they were, it, it, again, it was, it was good humor, it was smart humor, it was about marriage and so forth. It, when I was married and had kids, Steve, that's when I started to figure out that it really doesn't matter what the premise is, it's, it's how you craft the joke. I always used to try to come up with funny premises. And I started to learn that you could walk in and turn on the light in your room and write a bit about that. It, 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 you know, what's right in front of you isn't that difficult. It's your job to find the funny in it, you know, if something inspires you about it. And that's when I started to figure that out. So I started to do bits 
that I were they were signature. Nobody could take them. If anybody went near it, they'd be like, "Hey, that's Buddy Fitzpatrick's bit," you know. And yet, it wasn't brilliance. It wasn't thinking outside of the box. It was just me finding out how to write from my point of view. And then when the divorce hit, um, uh, it was it was like a seesaw. Uh, I was I was one person on stage and one person off stage. I would I would sob on the way to the gig, kill him, and then sob on the way home. And I didn't like that. And I was working with Chris Titus about two years later. And he had gone through an incredibly painful divorce. And he was talking about it on stage. And I thought, oh my God, there is something funny in it. So that's when I started to shift towards where I'm at now in a very comfortable place, which is um, talking about grief and hardships in life and how you come out of them. And, um, I, I mean, I've done gigs where people have come up to me and go, how, how can you make fun of all that? How can you make fun of your life? So, and I love that because, uh, I'm the one doing that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's really where I'm at now. That's where, like, really where the turn started to happen. And again, just last year, went through another horrible breakup, but I didn't wait, I didn't wait, I didn't waste any time. The next night I was on stage talking about it and it felt great, very liberating came up with some good stuff even then, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's how I kind of rose up. And Omnipop, you know, East Coast, West Coast, different. I went out to the West Coast one time. Bruce Smith runs the West Coast. Yeah, Bruce, Bruce has been on the show. And in fact, I, I always talk to uh, Jess about uh, getting different clients on the show. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Bruce is a great guy. And he, he brought me out to look at me and completely picked my my set uh, apart even though I killed it was at the it was at the ice house which is you know you can anybody can really kill there it's such a great room I was going to say and again I walked yeah I walked out all cocky and he was like hey here's what's wrong and he completely you know brought me down the side but I I really appreciate that what did he say was wrong with you because and you're right about the ice house I always say if you go into the main room of the ice house and you don't get laughs. You do not deserve to be in the business because <laughs> that crowd is so cultivated. It's been there for so long. And Pasadena is not L.A. You don't get the, the, the hipster douchebag uh, faction that you'll get in like a bar in Silver Lake or, you know, different clubs. Or, and you won't get the major touristy people that do go to the uh, improv and the comedy store because they're going to see a Louis C.K. or a Chris Rock and they never get disappointed right. because someone always shows up. The Ice House is like an East Coast comedy club where people, Pasadena is a quiet little area and they go out and I've done it like a few times and I was just, I mean, I walked on stage and it was one of those things, it was like, oh my God, they're laughing at the setup. What is, what is, what is wrong with them? <laughs> I know. It's, it's, well, you know, like you said, if you don't get laughed there, you don't belong in the business, but it, but if you do, it doesn't mean you deserve a sitcom or anything. Right. You know, it, it's, it's just you can drop a dime and they'll crack. They'll give you an applause break. You know, it's ridiculous. Now, Ridiculously what, easy. For, yeah. What What did he see yeah. wrong about your act? Um, you know, you said it in the very beginning, uh, autobiographical. I was still, at that point, uh, playing it safe. And he wanted me to be become more self-deprecating and I never liked self-deprecating humor uh, unless it was smart like you know everything else you know um, but you know the heavy guy getting up there and doing 45 minutes of heavy material just doesn't appeal to me that's what I thought he meant by self-deprecating and once again I had to learn how to uh, how to talk about myself without putting I mean the way I talk about my kids but I never put the um, sort of like it's, that's, that's Louis C.K. You know he loves his kids, you know. But you can make fun of that. I started to learn how to do that and so forth because Bruce basically said you're playing it so safe, you're never going to stand out. You know, you're never you don't. It's you're not talking about what you really want to talk about on stage. That's what you need to be talking about on stage. And he was right. No, that's I- funny. One guy said, "Stop stripping," and I did. And then another guy said. You gotta start talking about yourself more uh, in a daring way, and I do. Maybe you should start talking about yourself in a daring way and strip, and then fucking shit will hit the hit the fan. <laughs> you know what? I never thought of putting those two together. That's what the, that's the missing piece. 
Yeah. Now, now, That's right. now, when you when you sit there and be more deprecating, and you do talk about your kids, and you do talk about you know your breakups, when you sit down to write that, because I always think it's like when people do one person shows or people write a book about themselves that it's you're really bearing your soul when you do that, and and I think you know when we when we do safe observational humor, which is you said it's safe. If someone doesn't laugh, you think, oh well, they don't get it. But when it's when it's when it's about you, I think it's more personal. How do you sit there when you sit there and craft a bit about a breakup or your kids? How do you craft it that one you you want to get the laughs because you do, but then you also craft it to sit there and go, if I don't get the laugh, that's fine because this is very well written. Yeah, I, that's funny you put that that way. I. I think there came a point for me personally, uh, I didn't care whether I got the laugh or not. There's a certain amount of confidence that you have in yourself as a writer that they will laugh. They're going to laugh. But if nothing else, they're going to be intrigued by me in some way. I'm going to keep their attention. And I think that's what I find very appealing when I watch other comics. It's, you, you don't, it's almost like this new way of doing it. You know, every, it morphs every few years, observational, uh, you know, black box, whatever. And I think it's into this um, very self-awareness type thing where you're, where you're not looking at a stand-up, you're looking at someone doing a little piece. And uh, I really like that. I, the audience guess. Sometimes the way I set it, I set up something. Um, I can get them to go ah, and then they laugh. To me, that's that's the same thing as getting a laugh. If I want to like make them gasp and feel sorry for me, to me that's the same thing as getting a laugh, right? You're you're looking for an emotion. So um, I love writing like that. I I love it. So you just come up with the premise. Like one day, my daughter, my 18 year old daughter, said to me. I was so depressed, and she said, uh, recently, you know, a recent breakup, and she said, well, would you tell me if somebody were treating me the way she's treating you? And I thought that was such a great question from a kid to their parent. So I brought it up on stage, but I didn't have the joke, but I said it, and then in, in, a, in the moment, right after I said, what would you tell me if, I would, if somebody were treating me the way she's treating you? I said, so now I'm on Tinder. Okay. It gets a little laugh, yeah. you know. It, gets a, I don't, it doesn't get an applause break, but honestly, God, Steve, there is humor in that type of stuff, and people come up to me afterwards and just relate, no matter what they've gone through, you know. It's a, and I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't do it to say I'm going to get the audience to relate to me. But God, I, I, I think I talk about very mundane, relatable things that hurt a lot sometimes. And I, I don't know. I'm enjoying it. Now, so I only know what I'm going to be writing two years from now, but that's what I'm doing now. Now, do you do you sometimes go out of your way to find a premise that you will find mundane? Because it's a matter of, you know, you know what's working for you, okay? And this is what's working. Do you ever sit there and go, okay, like the bit about what your daughter said. Do you ever sit there and not embellish? I always do it on Facebook. I do a conversation with me and Joanne. And I always punch up the punchline, you know, as we were watching TV always, or whatever. Yeah, so I, I always so. punch it up just, and it's just a bit. And people were like, I think they think that's really me. You know, it's always her calling me a jerk or calling me a dick, <laughs> but I'm like, no, she's not going right. to do that. But do you ever sit there and, and just come up with ideas that, you know, fit into your act because you know that they are a piece of the puzzle, even though they haven't happened to you? Um, Sure. I mean, I think the, the, I think the bottom line of a comic is to find the funny. That's our job. And um, so I guess I still have that instinct. I don't know if I'm answering your question or, or if I really fully understand it, but, you know, I mean, revenge is a great incentive for me to write bits, believe it or not. Um, someone hurts me. Um, it's almost like I'm pleading my case <laughs> in front of the audience, you know, and um, like I get to say what I've always wanted to say that I couldn't get to say to her. And and then I just, there's, you just find the funny in it. It's, it's awesome to make fun of that other person because everyone's been hurt. I rewrote the stages of grief and I go through them, you know, 
And everybody out there has grieved and, and gone through it and so forth. And so, um, but I get to, I get to uh, throw somebody under the bus. Yeah, I'll write about that. You know, um, sadness, everyone's been sad. Everybody, everybody has had a time where they can't get out of bed, you know. And that's when my daughter walked in and said that to me. What would you tell me if blah, blah, blah. Um, I honestly don't know how I came up with, so now I'm on Tinder. I actually think I came up with that standing on stage. It was, maybe I thought about it. I, I get in more trouble when I think about writing. I, I think I limit myself more. Half of what I write, half of what I talk about on stage has come literally from me being on stage. And I think most comics would say that anyway. When you're really in the moment, and you know that feeling, right? When you're in the moment and you say something and you in your mind you go, well, that's a keeper. <laughs> right. And, then, you know? and you know what I also think it is? It's also, uh, you do that now, but I think in, in the beginning when people are younger stand-ups, they, a lot of times, they want to do that, but they don't because I always say, you know, back when we were starting out, it was awesome. it was a moneymaker. So you didn't want to screw up a gig because you depended on three weekends or four weekends a year from that club. So I think that we right. would sit there and we wouldn't take that step. We wouldn't, you know, some of us would, but you wouldn't do it constantly. Now, as you get older and like when you, when you're closing a show... The bottom line is you have the instinct that it's going to work. And what's the worst if it doesn't work? When you're young, if you lose the crowd on one bit, you shit yourself. But when you're older, you just say, well, um, um, this is what I do. I'll get them back. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, I think it's a part of comfortability on stage, you know, knowing who you are on stage. I think that takes a very long time. I think most comics, don't realize how long that's actually going to take. So they're acting like a comic before they actually are who they are on stage. And I certainly am guilty of that as well. But, you know, the other part is, I think, too, Steve, I'm established. Um, I'm, uh, you know, uh, my manager on the up, they get calls for me. So my fan base <laughs> really is the comedy clubs. And I... I have I have bookers I have clubs that like to use me in private events and so forth so they're they're my I guess my fan base and I feel very comfortable because I'm established enough where if something doesn't work nobody's going to go walk out and go my god he killed except for that one bit right <laughs> it's just an overall you get to a point where it's an overall good show you know you get that comfortable I guess now doing your career when was your first time you got a tv spot i know on your website uh which is buddy comic i believe yes it is buddycomic.com thank you i know you have your uh thing with goldthwaite introducing you on uh gotham but when was your first tv appearance and was it stressful for you when you had to go on and how did you decide to do the five or six minutes what did you decide and did your management help you structure that the first time I was on television, I think it was, what was the one, was it, did the improv, and I did the improv or something, did they have one like that? They won in LA. They did, didn't they? Evening at the Improv. What's that? Evening at the Improv. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what it was, but I, 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 it was either Caroline's Tonight or Evening at the Improv, but we were in Santa Monica. I did not have management, and I just instinctively uh, took, instead of, taking jokes throughout my act I picked a, a, a five minute bit that I that I do and so I didn't have to like memorize all these jokes so I was nervous I was very nervous and David Tell was on with me and the, the host the guest host was Margot Kidder <laughs> and yeah and she goes out to inter, you know she goes out and then ladies and gentlemen tonight and you, even at the improv tonight's special guest Margot Kidder and she walks out and she's dressed we were with her in the wings. We were standing there talking to her. She's dressed in a very conservative skirt, jacket, suit, like she's a secretary with high heels and so forth. <laughs> and she goes out on stage, and they're applauding, and she does one or two minutes of how she, you know, she has this, um, she's been pigeonholed into these parts, and, you know, that I am this, like, mild-mannered person. And she rips the suit off, and she's in an, a, a black leather S&M outfit. Very tight, very, very exposing, and her nipples pop out, immediately pop out. 
and this huge bell goes off and the lights come up and the director says we got to cut and they tell her they didn't have sound they didn't tell her that her nipples popped out they said we lost sound we got to do it from scratch <laughs> so she, she comes back in and Dave, david tell and i not only helped her get dressed quickly but stuffed her nipples back into her into her s m and we looked at each other while we did it and then they had to tell the audience act like you didn't see it she was so pissed off Act like you didn't see it. You know, you got to be as surprised. In fact, give us a bigger surprise. You know, they directed the audience. It was ridiculous. But she did it. And she went out and did it. <laughs> yeah, that was my first time on TV. And I, you know, I almost pissed my pants. But it almost helped that that happened. Because nothing was, nothing ran perfectly from the very beginning. So I felt a certain amount of pressure taken off of me. Now, what, now that's, I mean, you got to see Margot Kidder's nipples, which and then later she lived in a dumpster, so I think a lot of people saw her nipples. <laughs> that's right, and stuffed them back in. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, now what, was, some of your, now, what was like doing Gotham? Because Gotham seems like, I mean, that seems, I know you hosted there the other night, last night, I believe. Um, uh, Sunday, yeah, so Sunday. What was it like getting that nod? <laughs> Had you done Gotham before, or... How, did they know you? I mean, did you have to audition for that? Because Gotham's on the Access Network, and I always see some people I know do it. But what, did they just call you and say, you're up, buddy? Yeah, I mean, I'm established there. I host there. I I guess that's, I wouldn't call it my home club, but it's I do most of my spots there. So maybe it is my home club. So it, I was ultimately in the rotation. The way they book it, you know, if you're a, if you're a straight white guy, uh, you there's a huge selection of straight white comics and the look of the show has to be you know uh can't be all that so we get used the least you're in a bigger rotation um so i had to wait my turn you know because uh, there's always a woman and someone of color and someone of another ethnicity or whatever you know um but it was the best it was the best tv show because they treat it like a club there are no restrictions you can use name brands. You can you can say we can your language, and there's no limit to your language and and so forth because it's it's shown it's filmed like you're at the comedy club, and they don't want any restrictions like that. And that's why it's fun. You can do whatever you want. Now, how do you pick your set to do that? Because as I said, you're used to doing 45 minutes to an hour, and that's what you do. And then as your you know as your act has developed to its more you know, st- seems somewhat storytelling or longer bits. How do you sit there and decide this is what I'm going to do? Because it's not like you're a young comic where if you go out and slay, it's going to help you out. You're already headlining. You already have, you know, Omnipop with you, who people call to use you. How do you decide what you're going to do on a set like that when it's just like a comedy club? Yeah, I at that time I think I chose um, the beginnings of certain bits. Um, so if I do, I think, I, I think they gave you nine minutes and it's live and they're, they're, you're literally watching behind the cameras in the back of the room, your countdown. And, and when it hits 30, 30 seconds, you have got, in 30 seconds, they need to end the show. And if, if you go long, the other comments after you, their time gets cut and that's, you know, it's, they make you feel really bad if you go long, which of course has happened. So I, I think I looked at an eight, because they don't care if you go under. So I looked at an eight-minute set and then included laughter and so forth, and I would take the beginnings of certain um, bits that kind of made sense and run together anyway. And I just did, I did like opening lines of different bits. That's how I came up with it. And literally would time it on the way in, in the car. I would just talk it. And if it came up seven or eight minutes, then I knew I was in the ballpark. Now, on your website, uh, buddycomic.com, uh, there's a picture of you and uh, Joan Rivers, I believe. Now, then, now, you worked with her a lot? I did. I used to open for her. Um, I don't know what it is about women comics of that. Uh, Susie Essman, Joey Behar uses me a lot. I don't know why I get... Maybe because I, I think I am relatively clean. Um so I think they like that because they're not, and it's a great contrast. But um, plus, I don't fool around. If they say do twenty, I do twenty. You know, they're not like trying to pull me off the stage. And you know, people do thirty and they get pissed off and they never work for them again. <laughs> it's 
So, um, but Joan, yeah, I worked with her uh, quite a few times, and she was a comics comic. She could sit in the green room with you, and you felt like you were you. She was simply another comic on the show in the green room. She was that. Um, she's that. She was that much of a comic, really. No matter what else she did, uh, she was a stand-up, and you got the sense of that when you hung around her. And she'd even say, "Listen, I'm I'm working on this new bit. What do you think?" <laughs> and she'd start talking about it, you know. And it was never funny. And then she got out there, and it would always kill. So there you go. Now you're acting. I know. I saw you on The Sopranos. How'd that come about? Auditioned for it. I auditioned for um, that. And a month went went by, and then I auditioned for an episode of uh, Law and Order. And Tom, my manager, called me the next day and said, "You got the part." And I thought he meant Law and Order because the next thing he said, it, and I said, "He said it's The Sopranos." He said, "You're kidding me!" It took a month, uh, but that was really an audition. It's one of the only things I've gotten, as a matter of fact, <laughs> from just simply auditioning. Yeah, and that was great. Yeah, that was like being at, at day camp. It was a hell of a lot of fun. And very depressing when I had to leave. Very depressing. Now, have you pursued the acting, you know, over the years, gotten back into that, that groove? Yeah, I hooked up with um, smaller production companies who do um, independent films. And there's a circle of actors and filmmakers that, just like the comedy, the business, um, you can, if you can get into the circle and you can act, you can get behind the camera. And for the last Four years, that's what I've done. You know, some of them will show up very, very late on, I don't know, you know, some channel that, that you never heard of, Boob Doob or whatever. Um, I mean, they're out there. I've done a couple pilots with these people. But it makes for a great reel. <laughs> yeah, the projects really don't go anywhere, but I get to put my, I get to put scenes on my reel on my website, on Omnipop's website. Um, so, yeah, and that's fun a lot of fun I love acting I wish I could do it more that in writing Steve the next time we talk I will be writing as opposed to doing stand up writing as in what what kind of uh, what way is in TV or, or just theater or what are you what are you going to write probably I would like to write all of those then uh, right now uh, I am commissioned for the first time writing a screenplay and if that if that's as successful as I hope it is, I don't even care if it's made. I just want it to get bought. Um, I, I, I'm having a good time doing it, and it kind of hit me that, wow, I could, if this works out, I could dig, you know, work less, get paid more, and you're not traveling. I can, I, at 56, that's looking pretty, pretty amazing. Now, how did that all come about, the commissioning of that? And had you written screenplays before, or had you done treatments, or how did this whole breaks hopefully that will that will become an, a new part of your career how did that all come about um a friend of mine uh, another comic who has sold many many screenplays said i um uh she got commissioned and was off offered a partner and you know she could pick a partner and she asked me to partner up on her on it because there's a sensibility to it that she thought i would you know uh, be good with. So I, she, I mean, came out of the blue. She just asked me to do it. Now, what do you, what are some of your remembrance of the good, uh, the good old Philadelphia comedy days? I mean, what are, what are some of, you know, it was such a, I just, I tell people it was such a, like, we were all, we all just wanted to do comedy and there was such a diverse group of guys. You know, there was like the Keith Robinsons and the Steve Thomases and you had the Paul Tompkins and the Adam McKay's and the Joey Callahan's. And the John Delvecchio, who I think he's a teacher. I don't even know. Uh, Ralph Harris. Ralph, you know, Ralph, right? Ralph and Ramon Harris. Well, Ra um, yeah, Ralph had gotten that sitcom, so he left Philly. Um, that's right. But yeah. So, I mean, what, what were some of the times you enjoyed? I mean, what, you know, the, did you have a camaraderie? Were you close friends? I know with, with Paul, and I know you hung out with him, but were you close friends with Paul and Adam? I was close friends with Paul Tompkins, Paul F. Tompkins, and Frank Barnett. They, we used to call ourselves the, the three biggest idiots we know. And uh, Philly comics were incredibly supportive of one another, I thought. 
I was amazed at not everybody. It wasn't a hundred percent. There were clicks and so forth, but for the most part, um, there was very little rivalry. You know what I mean? I, I don't remember there ever being. Everybody just was who they were and went up on open mics and. It was. Some, it, I had a great time, and I became really close with Paul and um, Frank. And then when I moved to New York before Paul went to L.A., that's when Adam McKay came in. And so I would. Kn- I kn- I knew Adam whenever I went to Philly to visit, but I was not as close to Adam as Paul and Frank were. And and Dan Fox, you know, Dan Fox was in that circle as well. Whatever happened to Frank Burnett? Because he was so damn funny. He was one of these guys that was just him and Dennis Horan were just so funny. Whatever uh, happened to those guys? Uh, Dennis, I still think does it a little bit in Philly. Um, Frank, um, uh, to this day, is one of my best friends. Lives in Philly. Uh, he's a contractor. Uh, his oldest just went to college. His youngest, I believe, is a sophomore. He's married to Jane, and. Um, just has that kind of a life, a great, you know, happy life like that. It's amazing. But you're right. He should be doing it because out of all of us, he was probably the funniest. You know, he was he was a great writer and a he was funny, man. He was really funny. Yep. And he on had, and off. And he had that stage presence because he was just he was he was lurking. You know, it's like he was tall. Yes, and, so but he, tall. It was yeah. just it was funny. So uh, now there were times where he couldn't fit. Remember, he had to like. <laughs> yeah. There was one club up some place in an upstairs room where the ceiling was very low, and he always had to bend over. Yeah, you're right. He was very tall. Now, do you try to book a lot of work now, or I mean, I know you have to make the money, or do you like to stay at home and write? I mean, I mean, I know you have to get out there, but do you do you enjoy private gigs or club gigs better? Because I looked at your calendar, you seem to do a lot of private. You do a lot of private gigs. What do you enjoy, and how do you prepare for a private gig if it's going to be, you know, you don't, you know, it's going to be a, a, a certain demographic usually? Um, I don't really like doing private, um, but you know, when I say private, it could be a, a PTA fundraiser. Or um, I do a lot of them because, you know, I have kids and I, t- I talk a lot about their schooling, the, the plight of schooling and so forth, um, and how much I hate it. Anyway, um, so I, my, I, uh, my material is my material. I don't really prepare for it. If they, you know, I talk about divorce and death and all that stuff, um, and it's amazing how many fundraisers and privates I can do because of that, you know, um, where I come at it from. Um, Because I'm not always laughing, but I got a good reputation, so I do it. I like like doing resorts, family resorts. Those are some of my favorite, you know, Woodlock Pines up in the Poconos. Uh, There's seven-year-olds sitting in the room. That's always challenging, you know, um, which is good. Believe in challenging yourself. my favorite, though, Steve, is obviously the smaller, intimate clubs in New York. I just, I love the freedom of um, really getting back to basics. You know, it's it's almost like, the, you know, what we were talking about in the beginning, Comedy Works versus CFO. Certain clubs are just really, really comfortable to be in, and the and collectively the audience is right there with you. You know what I mean? You can, you can experiment. Uh, the, the the dark brick wall behind you and all that stuff. Classic comic comedy room. But if, unfortunately, they pay the less. <laughs> They're the least amount of money you're going to make, so you can't always do this, and you got to go. It's like so many comics, I guess, go out on boats, which I won't do yet. But, you know, um, yeah, it's tough. It's I've, tough. I've heard the boat scene has changed, though. They're much more, it's not what it used to be. You know, there's a lot of, you know, like Rich Scheidner's going out on boats and Steve McGrew, and they just said it's more of like a... Uh, it's more of a club feel. It's not. I know your your, your buddy's John DeCrosta goes out a lot too on boats, and I've heard it's. Yes, uh, he does. I heard it's a lot, uh, and he takes Luigi, and I heard it's a, a lot. Um, <laughs> it's a lot different uh, now. The crowds are much more into comedy. Yeah, I think they treat it more like a comedy club. You know, again, that cl- comedy club setting always works as opposed to, you know. 
two-year-olds being able to be in the audience, and they actually do the, this, the, the adult shows only, and there's two or three people on the show as opposed to just the, the one comic and a juggler or whatever. I hear it's much better that way. I just, I still, at this point, I still have one daughter home, and I don't feel like I want to do that yet. That's a, that's a commitment, man, to be... I mean, I, I guess you make a lot of money. That's what I hear. But boy, what a way to make it. You know, you're away a lot. Now, what do your daughters think of you doing stand-up? I mean, is it something, has it changed since they've gotten older? Was it different when they were younger? I mean, how is their whole view on that? They they love it. Um, they've seen me go through so many changes with it. Um, I think it's their father's job. It's not... It's not... It, What's it like being Bruce Springsteen's kid? <laughs> you know what I mean? They don't have a famous father. They just have a father who happens to be famous. So uh, not that I'm comparing Jesus. Don't don't get me wrong. But <laughs> I am just who I am. The My father's a stand-up comedian. I, I might as well be a banker. But they come to my shows and laugh and get a kick when I talk about them and so forth. You know, yeah. And one went towards that side and the other one's going toward the mother's brainy or arithmetic side. That makes sense. Now, you said, you know, hopefully the, you know, the screenplay that will take off and stuff like that. If it did start to take off and if you were to pursue that career and find yourself, would you give the stand-up up? Like, I know Nick Bakai, you know, has written a few movies and he writes for Mom and he used to do stand-up and he's really loved stand-up. Steve Scrovan did the same. Scrove wrote for, you know, Seinfeld and he wrote for Everyone Loves Raymond and they've really broken away from stand-up and then Lou DiMaggio now is getting back into stand-up. Would you ever leave stand-up completely? I mean, was it something that you could do with a, not easily, but sit there and go, you know what? Time's up for this right now. Maybe I'll come back to it. Um, I hope not. I hope I'll always do it. Um, you know, so much of the level that I'm at, so much of it is about driving and, um, uh, where you where you're going and not having so much of a choice. Uh, what weekends do I want to work and what weekends don't I want to work? I don't know how it would feel to be doing stand up and not having to do it on a financial commit with, because of a financial commitment, or not going, not getting in the car and driving six or seven hours in one night just to do a show somewhere because you got to make the money. It would, I think it would be great to just have more of a, uh, a choice in the matter. But I hope I'd never give it up. I mean, God, it defines me. Right now, it's who I am, so I can't imagine giving it up. I still love doing it. Do you miss it? Do you miss doing it? Uh, yeah, sometimes. But then I sit there and I go to one of these gigs out here, and there's like, it's just a crappy <laughs> audience. And I'm like, like, I liked it when I would go back, when before Joanne moved out here, I would go back and I would go to you know, play uh, Georgines or I would feature Georgines or I would go back just a few years ago and she lived right near the Marlton Comedy Cabaret so I would go and do 15, 20 minutes there or, or get booked. Uh, that was fun because it was a weekend crowd but the rest, uh, you know, I don't I don't need it. I mean, I, I get yeah. out of it so I'm not going out headlining and I just, I'm the same way. It's the travel. So, anyway. Yeah. So, and, and where you are, you know, California comics have to travel a lot more, man. I, I, can't, I don't know how you guys do it. It's crazy. So anyway, I'm, it's crazy. I'm, I'm glad I got in touch with you. Um, uh, that was almost an hour. See that the show's an hour. Now, do you tweet? Are you a Twitter guy? I am, yes. What's your buddy Twitter? Patrick. Okay. It's it's buddy, a... I think it's Buddy Comic. Buddy Comic. That's what it is. Buddy Comic. Everything's Buddy Comic. Okay. BuddyComic.com, Buddy Comic, Twitter, Buddy Fitzpatrick, obviously, Facebook, uh, YouTube. I'm just starting to put some videos out, so you can check them out there. That's my new venture, Steve. Always trying to come up with. I mean, why, you got to take advantage of social media at some point. It's here, for God's sake. Exactly. So, so people, check them yeah. out. Buddy Comic. It's Buddy Comic across. So just Google Buddy Buddy Fitzpatrick. You'll find stuff. Follow me on Twitter. That's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot. I tweet about the the, the debates and stuff like that. Uh, Instagram and Words with Friends. Cooper Talk One. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have over 550 episodes up there. You can email me at Cooper CooperTalk.net. Don't forget my other uh, website, StopTheSalt.com, the uh, cookbook I wrote. It's a, when I had a health problem. It's a low-sodium cookbook, 120 easy recipes. You can order it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon, but if you order it at StopTheSalt.com, I will sign it, and, and I make more money off that. 
So anyway, go people, go Google Buddy Fitzpatrick. Check him out on social media. Follow me on Twitter. That's at Cooper Talk. Email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week. Have a safe and sound weekend. All right, buddy.